BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. A lot in the news. Uh, Hurricane uh, Hurricane Irma is still uh, rolling along in the direction of Florida. Some very big concerns there. Uh, President Modi in India getting in a little trouble. Some interesting stuff in the uh, Financial Times today about the state of our economy. We're going to talk about Representative Rogers and uh, how he's working to destroy satellites that tell us weather information. But in the midst of all this, Richard McGregor is with us. He's a journalist and former Beijing bureau chief with the Financial Times. He's the author of the new book, Asia's Reckoning, China, Japan, and the Fate of U.S. Power in the Pacific Century. Uh, you can, uh, let's see, uh, you can tweet him at McGregor, M-C-G-R-E-G-O-R, Richard, and uh, Richard McGregor, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. So uh, your book, China, Japan, and the Fate of U.S. Po Power in the Pacific Century. Um, some, some fascinating stuff here. What, you, know, you, you talk in particular about the history wars. What are the history wars? Well, I think anybody living in America should be familiar with history wars. Look what happened in Charlottesville recently. It takes a long time to sort of cleanse politics of history. Uh, in fact, it, it, uh, you know, sometimes it never leaves. And East Asia's got their own big history wars, and that's really about uh, Japan's invasion of China in the 30s, the war in the 40s, uh, whether Japan apologized, whether they were sincere, whether China actually doesn't care if they apologize but just uses history as leverage in politics. And it's something which has permeated their relationship for, you know, 70 years. And it's very consequential, right? These are the second and third biggest economies in the world. In 10 years, China will probably be the biggest. Um, and the whole global economy goes, you know, runs through these countries. And th their inability to sort of get to a sort of a peaceful place on history makes it a very dangerous relationship. There's a theory of history that um, war comes about, sometimes revolution, but typically just war, when one uh, dominant, regionally dominant power loses that, the ability to assert that dominance and is replaced by another regional power or a worldwide power for that matter. Um, there are arguments that this is what informed both World War I and World War II and others you know, going way back in history. Um, do you subscribe to that notion, and do you see that kind of dynamic at play here? And if so, is it uh, the U.S. Uh, economically dominating Southeast Asia or, or Asia, or is it uh, Japan post-World War II? You know, that's, I think, to use the big words, this, this theory's got a lot of play recently. It's about, you know, the inevitability of a rising superpower falling into conflict with the established superpower, and that's the U.S., and China, right. uh, the so-called Thucydides trap, if I Yes, Thucydides, correctly. yes. Thank you. I've got a kind of slightly different take on that. I think the, the dangers, there is that danger, obviously. Um, the U.S. and China are on a collision course. That's the bad news. The good news is that they know that and they try to manage it. But there's another thing that that uh, Greek writer came up with, um, and that's about it's dangerous to build an empire. It's even more dangerous to let it go. And I reckon that mm. slightly describes better U.S. dilemma 
uh, in Asia, because the U.S. is a kind of imperial power uh, in East Asia. It has troops in Japan and South Korea 70 years after the war was won. Um, but if they left, there would be a vacuum, uh, potentially chaotic. It's why Japan and South Korea don't want the U.S. to leave, because they don't trust the country that would fill that vacuum, uh, China. So, And I kind of think we're at a turning point now, because you know China wants to be the dominant power in Asia, and they're, they're, their sort of sentiment is... You know, thank you, America. You can go home now. Right. And, and, and you know, you open the book with a, with a fascinating um, analysis of uh, how, how frustrated President Obama was with President Hu and how pleased, apparently, he was with President Xi in that Hu was, uh, the previous Chinese president, was relatively impenetrable. He, he never shared what he was thinking and whatnot. Xi is, is uh, much more proactive and like that. To what extent is is Chinese politics and our interaction with Chinese, and the world's interaction with Chinese politics, personality dependent versus, uh, you know, five-year plan, Communist Party has decided this, that, or the other thing dependent? You know, it's a very good question, um, because Hu Jintao, who was the previous Chinese leader, was a very sort of bland individual, kind of charisma-free zone, if you like. Uh, nobody could really get anything out of him other than largely scripted comments. Uh, Xi Jinping is a very different person, decisive, outspoken, uh, quite aggressive. Um, he's a risk taker uh, as well. But, and I think, so the personalities do matter. But I think the objective, um, the objective situation matters as well. You know, China was not so powerful 10, 12 years ago, 15 years ago when Hu Jintao took over. When Xi Jinping took over... He was in charge of a much more powerful country, so he had much more room to move. And I think Chinese aims and policies have kind of been pretty consistent, you know, and that now they've really got the capabilities, military capabilities, uh, economic leverage to get what they want. So, you know, I think that's probably the bigger trend. Yeah. There's there's a, a narrative that I know... Uh, Two people in the White House have been sharing with the president at some length, because I know them, um, that that basically the United States climbed to uh, industrial and international preeminence by copying the Tudor plan that that uh, had been put into place in England in the 14th or 15th century, which was you know basically a mercantilist plan that the that the Brits uh, stole from the from the Dutch and that they you know uh, reinvented from the uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans, and and that China has just kind of beat us at our own game. That China, starting you know 30 years ago, 30 40 years ago, uh, decided to go in this mercantilist direction, you know, protecting their own economy and and e exploiting the availability of other people's economies, um, and that the only way to fight mercantilism is by doubling down on mercantilism, and you know, and that's the you know the border adjusted trade or you know the the border adjustment taxes and and uh, tariffs and things like this. Um, what do you, to what extent do you think that that kind of thinking actually pervades, uh, you know, the thinking uh, with the U.S., China, Japan, and, 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 and what do you think of it? Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that all countries at different times have been protectionist, and there's no doubt that some, some, uh, in, in some cases they've been big winners from that. I mean, I'll tell you, South Korea and Japan were much more protectionist than China. Uh, and China was. Uh, China's kind of getting protectionist now. China needed to open up quickly at the, you know, when they decided to have a more market-based economy. They needed to open up quickly. But now that that they've sort of caught up, they're sort of thinking, okay, well, you know, they are becoming more protectionist. I mean, it's a little bit true that you know the U.S., the China is doing just what the U.S. did to the U.K. in the 19th century, but. It's a bit different in this respect. You know, modern economies, uh, the ability to steal, the value of stealing technology, the ability to sort of spread that technology, replicate it, benefit from it, I think is vastly greater these days than it was in the 19th century. And therefore, the act of theft is much more damaging these days. And I think the U.S. has got a, a very fair beef with China in stealing IP and protecting its own markets and tech companies and the like. Um, you know, it's the sort of thing I think Trump should be focused on rather than steal. Yes. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I would hope it would go like that rather than doubling down on mechanicalism because that, that, I think that would be bad for everybody else. Yeah, 
It's a, it's a very interesting time we live in, and I, I wish we had more time for this. I, I'd love to get into the North Korea thing, but I know you have to go at 15 after. It's a brilliant book, Asia's Reckoning, China, Japan, and the Fate of U.S. Power in the Pacific Century. The author, Richard McGregor, and available from you know all your typical book sources. Richard, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Great talking. And you can tweet him at McGregor Richard. We'll be back. Welcome back. We, uh, boy, it's uh, all the the information yesterday and the day before Donald Trump wanting to wanting to hook up with Chuck Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. He's he's liking the Democrats. The Republicans are freaking out. I haven't seen any reports so far. Maybe you have. If you have, let me know. I mean, it's possible there's a news site that I missed this morning. I only read about fifteen or twenty of them every morning. Uh, as part of my show prep here, but uh, I haven't seen any reports about what Trump and Ryan talked about at dinner last night. Or if Ryan stalked out of the White House or, you know, if they were seen hugging each other or yelling at each other. I no idea. But, uh, you know, we've, we've talked on this program at some length about the rise of authoritarianism around the world. And it's one of the things that most concerned me about the election of Donald Trump as president is that his, his tendencies are clearly authoritarian. You know, the, the idea of, I'm the big guy, I'm the big, you know, I'm the big cheese here, I'm, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. And authoritarianism seems to be on the rise around the world. You see uh, an authoritarian government in the Philippines with Duterte, Rodrigo Duterte, um, you know, and, and he's just explicitly killing people for using drugs and things like that. I mean, as one of many things, it's going after his political enemies in ways that are clearly authoritarian. Now it's happening in India. Excuse me. Uh, Narendra Modi, the president of India, who, uh, when he was mayor of a, a provincial mayor or a, the, the equivalent of a county commissioner or something like that, you know, some part of India, um, actually there were major riots where the Hindus murdered a bunch of the Muslims in this town. And Modi was... Somehow, and you know, there's still a debate directly, indirectly involved in all that, and that that was kind of his political launching pad. That was that was for Modi, the equivalent of Donald Trump standing up, you know, at, at Trump Tower and saying Mexicans are rapists and killers. And now you've got this this woman, Luri, uh, Guri Lankesh, uh, who is a, a reporter in India. Uh, she lives in Bengaluru, and Tuesday she walked out of her home and was shot in the head. And a bunch of Bodhi supporters are now tweeting and Facebooking and whatnot how happy they are that this journalist who had been calling out Hindu nationalism is dead. And Modi, as of the time that this uh, article by Michael Safi was published on, in The Guardian, which was, uh, I think, around three hours ago, Modi has not yet, or had not yet, said anything about that, had not spoken out in defense of journalism or this particular journalist or reporters in general. And, um, you know, so everybody's waiting to see, you know, what's what's the deal here. Meanwhile, uh, the Financial Times, if you subscribe to it, as I do, the, and, and no, they don't pay me to say this. It's just it's nice to have a newspaper that actually, um, you know, doesn't seem to have a huge political axe to grind. Uh, although, you know, I mean, let's let's call it what it is. You know, the Financial Times is rich people reading about rich people, rich people learning about the economy. It's, you know, it's, but for somebody who's an economy junkie, I find it fascinating. And, and this from their weekly summary that they send out, it's called the, the, the FT News Mine. Uh, some quotes, and it's basically kind of the best of the week, right? But here's a couple of them. Goldman Sachs is not the only bank struggling with its commodities business. The world's top 12 investment banks have just recorded their lowest half-yearly revenues in the area since 2006. So commodities are not doing well. Commodities would be, you know, copper, steel, gold, silver, iron, zinc, wheat, pork bellies, whatever. And the thing you need to know about commodities is that they are an early warning signal about the state of the economy. If uh, food processors expect strong demand, they order extra pork bellies, right, to turn into, uh, you know, uh, jerky sticks or whatever. 
I don't know if it's pork bellies or, you know, cows or whatever they, I don't know what they make jerky out of, but you know what I'm, what I'm talking about. If, if, if developers, housing, people who build houses expect strong demand is coming down the road, they, they buy more lumber. If car manufacturers expect more cars to be bought, they buy more steel. And in the course of buying these, these intermediate products, they're not the raw material itself. The raw material is the iron ore, right? The raw material is the, the field filled with corn. Um, they're not the raw material, but they're the intermediate material. And when you see intermediate materials like that dropping in value or the raw materials that produce them dropping in value, it typically means that the wholesale, at the wholesale level of the marketplace, the market is expecting the economy is going to go down. And in fact, FT points out the, this uh, article, the, the article titled Decline in Investment Banks Revenues from Commodities, that, quote, the world's top 12 investment banks have just recorded their lowest half yearly revenues since 2006. I, I mentioned that. And then it goes on to say 41% lower than the first half of last year a 41% drop. This is a significant signal, in my opinion. They also note, this is a decline in U.S. factory orders from a September 5th article in the Financial Times. U.S. factory orders in July fell by the most in nearly three years, signaling a speed bump for the manufacturing sector. Factory orders slid 3.3% in July. So, you know, this is not yet GDP. This is not yet the actual economy out there, the public economy. This is now just, you know, the stuff in the pipeline, right? The goods, basically, in the pipeline. But when they start to collapse, look out. Now, we don't know what impact Harvey and Irma are going to have on all this, because they're going to create mind-boggling, I mean, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of demand. So we'll see. The flip side of the demand that these hurricanes are creating by wiping things out is they're also wiping out people's ability to make a living fill that their own money. Fantasy football fans, the wait is nearly over. Football is back, which means FanDuel is back. FanDuel is fantasy football for everyday fans. They have new contests starting every week, so there's no busted seasons. FanDuel has something for everyone. Lots of contests to choose from, starting at just $1. Just pick a contest, choose your team, and watch your score in real time. Hey, would you like to have Colin Kaepernick on your team? He's on mine. There's a lot of ways to put together and personalize your team, and boy, the games just get better and better. Every, over 2.5 million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Sign up today. Go to FanDuel.com, click the Join Now button, and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M. New users get free entry into the NFL Sunday Million with over $1 million in cash prizes when you make your first deposit on FanDuel. Just visit FanDuel.com and sign up with promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. That's FanDuel, F-A-N-D-U-E-L dot com, promo code TOM, void where prohibited. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. This is uh, something that doesn't look particularly good. Equifax, one of the three big credit rating agencies, was hit by hackers apparently back on July 29th. And uh, they announced this on September 7th, which, uh, if my math is right, is five weeks later. And uh, however, the week after the hack, on August 1st and 2nd, or a few days after the hack, according to uh, reporting over at, by Luke Barnes over at the Center for American Progress's blog, Think Progress, the headline is, Wealthy Executives Sold Off Equifax Stock Prior to Data Breach Revelation. Uh, credit monitoring firm Equifax was left reeling this week uh, after news that emerged that three senior executives had sold nearly $2 million in stock just days before the company discovered a, cy discovered a cyber attack that had exposed the sen sensitive information of 143 million Americans. Uh, they, they discovered the data breach on July 29. Uh, they announced it five weeks later on September 7. However, on August 1 and 2, executives John Gamble, G Gamble Joseph Longren, and Rodolfo Plotter earned a combined $1,780,000 by selling off stock, which the SEC was not. These are not pre-planned stock sales. In addition to this, according to Bloomberg News, which first broke the story, Chief Financial Officer John Gamble made $946,000. U.S. Information Solutions President Joseph Longren made $584,000, and Consumer Information Solutions President Rodolfo Plotter earned $250,000. Uh, 
Uh, they're all saying, hey, you know, it's just a small sale. We're actually worth many, 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 many million. Yeah, so I make a million bucks. Uh, so what? Doesn't matter. I'm so rich. It doesn't matter. That, that's the argument that they're making, right? I'm not sure anybody's buying it, but that's the argument that they're making. Anyhow, Linda in uh, Norco, California. Hey, Linda, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. Um, I, this is actually for Cliff and perhaps the woman that called a couple of days ago and was so discouraged. Uh, as I age here, I've been looking into quantum physics. And scientists are now beginning to realize we live in a conscious universe. Yes. And, of course, any conscious system is built on feedback loops. So, uh, according to the Bible, actually, the soul that leaves the body at death is actually who we are. We are not these bodies. We are spiritual. We are souls, which means we're part of God. So it kind of cracked me up. Cliff was saying, how could God do this with the hurricanes? And I thought, we're part of God. We're living in chaos right now. <clears throat> what is a hurricane? It's chaos. <laughs> so the weather is reflecting us, basically. Well, in a way, I mean, uh, you know, technically, scientifically, what a hurricane is, is the transfer of heat energy from the ocean to the air. And because water is so much more dense than air is, a small amount of water can hold an enormous amount of heat, uh, you know, millions of calories or BTUs of heat that, that would influence a huge area of, of air, and, which is why you can have the same heated ocean fuel three hurricanes in a row, which is what's going on right now. But yeah, I agree with you, Linda. The, 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 there's Dean Radden wrote a brilliant book called Entangled Minds. Um, uh, Fred Allen Wolf, the physicist, uh, wrote uh, a, a brilliant book about how the universe is, is alive and conscious, the entire universe, and, and we're part of it. Um, I, I, I love that theory, the idea that, you know, we're basically like radio receivers in a way. You know, the, the, you turn on the radio and it's, you know, it, it's not that Madonna is there in your radio. You know, she's just singing through it. It's, it's the 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 the. The signal is coming through. So the radio is a passive device, essentially, that's just that's just tapping into the radio waves that are constantly all around us. And if you believe that the universe is, you know, if, if you take Einstein's equation that matter is is made up of energy, and in fact, it's quantifiable, the amount of energy used to make uh, a particular amount of matter, whether it's, say, this paper cup in my hand or whatever, the amount of energy that was used to make the matter in this paper cup and the coffee in it is equal to the mass of the cup times the speed of light squared, E equals mc squared. And, and so that means that everything is ultimately made out of energy and we can quantify how much energy became matter in the, in the creation essentially. And so if everything is made out of energy and energy is what, you know, what our, is what consciousness is, you can build a strong argument that everything is made out of consciousness. In other words, everything is God. Um, what do you think about that, Linda? Deepak Chopra and Menzis Kafatos make In You Are the Universe. Yes. It's a wonderful book also. Yeah, I, I agree. So and I, I just wanted people to be encouraged. We're going through, uh, I believe, the spiritual evolution right now. And as horrible as the man in the White House is, look what has happened, how he has brought us together. Yes. And that that is a spiritual gift. That is our next step on spiritual evolution. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree at all. And I, and I think that uh, uh, this, is, this is an opportunity for us to, to reconnect with each other, to, to reconnect with the core ideas of our country, uh, you know, the, both at the founding and, and in contemporarily. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a mercury retrograde opportunity, a go inside opportunity. Linda, uh, and just uh, for people who may not have caught Cliff's call, Cliff had called earlier and said, uh, how do you reconcile any belief in God with the idea that, okay, God saved this person, but killed that person in the storm? I mean, you know, really? And, and I said, I think that we diminish God when we anthropomorphize God uh, or gods or goddess or whatever, um, that, that it's, you know, that's making God as small as we are. And I, and I think that we need to just, you know, think of it as this incredibly huge thing. Um, but anyway, Linda, I, got, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. Well said. William in uh, Arizona, and William, I don't know how to pronounce that town. Can you try, say it for me, please? Uh, no, it's not. Hold on a second. Sure. 
It looks like Luca Luca Chuck. Say it again. Can you hear me? Yeah. How do you say it? Uh, can you put me back in the queue? Yeah. No, you're on the air. You're live on the air. How do you say your name of your town? I, I'm in I'm in Sunrise Beach, Missouri. I travel. I, I deliver fifth wheelers trailers around the country. Ah. Uh, okay. Okay. Great. So what's up, William? But but wait, kudos for you about your uh, your past exposure to religion and stuff. But understanding that there's a connectedness of uh, particles or subatomic or whatever. There's, there's got to be something like that. I, I read yeah. Things on it. I, I yeah. Read look at things. look up Google quantum quantum entanglement sometime. It'll blow your mind. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Where you where they can separate things and they and they, they react 20 miles away and, and all yeah, that kind of stuff. or 20 million miles away instantaneously. The yes. Thing, the other thing is the Republicans. This is a a this is the another case study they can't cover. Yes. And, and this is what my my theory of Donald Trump was. If he if he's gonna he ran as a Republican, he's given him first shot. He may be leaning towards Democrats now and saying to Republicans, "You've had your chance. You've done nothing with health care. You've had eight years. All you want is a tax break. All the deal, which she probably doesn't mind. But she may be saying enough with you guys." Yeah, we'll find out, William. I'm not. I'm not like one of these people. Like yesterday, I was saying, "Hey, you know, here's an opportunity, and this is great, and the Democrats should take this and use it." And I still, I still believe that, and I still agree with myself from yesterday. But, you know, at the same time, I don't think that any of us should think that Donald Trump is, you know, making large, sweeping, strategic thinking, you know, okay, I gave the Republicans seven months and they screwed up this one and this one and this one and this one. So to hell with them, I'm going to go with the Democrats. Now, I don't think that he thinks that way. I think that he thinks, you know, what's happening today and what will make me happy and what won't. I I think that he's he's much more uh, much more operating in the universe of a child than than an adult, frankly. Um, but that said, I, I, I also think that the way that the Republicans have basically tried to manipulate him, I mean, they've been treating him as if they just, you know, there was this uh, kind of joke during the during the election uh, period. And I don't recall if it was Paul Ryan or somebody else who said it, it might have been Lindsey Graham. But whoever said it, you know, would you like to have Donald Trump as a president? And the answer was, you know, where's the effect of, well, as long as he can hold a, a signing pen, I don't care because, you know, the Republicans in Congress are going to pass the legislation. And he, as president, just has to sign it. Um, I think that he's figured out that that's what they thought of him, that he was just the useful idiot. And, and, uh, and he's reacting to it. So we'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. William, thanks for the call. Great to hear from you. Uh, Scott in Alameda, California. Hey, Scott, what's up? Hey, Tom, I'm calling about the Equifax uh, security breach. Yeah. Uh, 143 million Americans uh, finance. Uh, uh, private information. Uh, it's like the Alibaba's cave for hackers. It's, right. not, it's a credit card number. It's just, it's the, you know, everybody can understand the seriousness of this. I called the financial services committee, uh, uh, members this morning. I tried starting with the chairman Hanserling and they hung up on me. Um, I was very polite, uh, and they hung up on me. Um, really? so I switched to the Democrats, uh, called Maxine Waters, other members, um, I'm urging, I would urge everyone to call the Financial Services Committee uh, uh, to get them to have hearings, um, to get uh, the uh, executives, uh, ICFAX executives in public uh, testimony to explain exactly what happened, why it was five weeks, took them five weeks to come public with this, and that five weeks, uh, hackers could have been doing extensive damage to hundreds of, you know, tens of millions, hundreds, millions of Americans. Um, also, I would urge uh, uh, that uh, that the callers demand that Equifax be the uh, the uh, initiator of uh, the service, rather than you having to go back to them. With six, they're asking Equifax is asking for the first six digits of your social security number to in order to get um, credit mo- free credit monitoring from them. So it's like if you were an armed robbery victim, you go back to the armed robber and say, "Can I see the gun again?" Right. I mean, it's, it's outrageous. So well, I would urge them to demand that Equifax, because Equifax already has your information. Right. They need to be the initiators of the service back to the consumer, not the other way around. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Scott. And, and this, uh, you know, lack of security that they had and now these questions about their executives getting rich off this, you know, because their stock went down 5 percent, um, you know, once the announcement was made. So everybody bailed out on their stock options and whatnot, you know, and sold them off, put the money in the bank and then 
it's it, it all stinks to high heaven. I, I agree with you. And I think that the Financial Services Committee um, in, the, in both the House and the Senate, there's, there's an equivalent of that in the Senate, uh, should be investigating this. And Equifax and, and frankly, all the other credit agencies should at, at the very least come in and say, OK, here's the state of the art of our security. Measures. This is what we're doing. And 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 then, you know, we need to find out, do we have protections as consumers? Scott, thanks for the call. Well said. Oh, and Rush Limbaugh, who on Monday was saying, ah, that Hurricane Irma, it's a it's a hoax, right? It's liberals. He's evacuating. Welcome back uh, to the Tom Hartman program. And on the line with us, super pleased to have with us Congressman Keith Ellison. He is the brother. Tom. <laughs> Congressman, it's great having you with us. You bet it, man. Ellison.house.gov is your website. At Keith Ellison, of course, is the Twitter account. And uh, you said you are uh, happy to take phone calls. We'll get sure. some of those for you in just a minute. And you're, you're with us for the, for the half hour, right? Well, you know, um, I could probably hang out later than that. I know I have to probably around. I mean, I can go till about 140. Oh, that's great. Okay, well, just let me know. We've got a hard break at the bottom of the hour from uh, 128 until... 133, where that that is dedicated, you know, lo- state local stations go to local news and advertisements and things. But other than that, we can work around pretty much anything. So okay. uh, what's on your mind? What's what's going on in Congress? What's going on in the Democratic Party that you want to tell people about? Well, the first thing I, I want to mention, everybody, is that, look, uh, with all of the horror around the 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 hurricanes, Harvey, Irma, uh, and uh, the fires out west, and then the DACA fail and uh, in, in an attack that, that Trump just launched. Don't forget about Charlottesville. Don't forget about what he did to transgender uh, soldiers, and uh, don't forget about uh, the, what he is with our pile. The, all these things are still there, and certainly don't forget about the emoluments clause violation. Don't forget that he's, you know, the nepotism. You know, all these things are still ongoing. And I'm a, I've, it has occurred to me, Tom, that the the flood of scandal and attack and insult and outrage is just coming so furiously that uh, people forget about the last horrible thing that he did. And so if he does anything slightly less horrible, then all of a sudden we're thinking, oh, he's getting better. He's not getting better. Everything he does is designed to promote uh, uh, a certain philosophy uh, which says that poor people have too much, rich people have too little, that uh, and that you know you have to be a certain racial, religious uh, kind of uh, uh, identity in order to be okay in his mind. And America only can accommodate certain people and not everyone. And uh, he does not accept the idea of liberty and justice for all. So. That's the thing on my mind first, that we should not let ourselves get stuck home by Trump simply because he has said he's willing to revisit DACA in six months. Uh, none of that. No, this is the same guy we've always seen, and we should add up his his attacks and not forget about them. Mm-hmm. So that's that. Um, DACA is certainly a, a top, a front center thing on my in my mind. And, and it strikes me too, Tom, that you know when you think about DACA, you know, 800,000 people you know, here these are people who grew up here. This is their country. They are Americans. They may not have the paperwork they need, but they are Americans in every in every way it, it means to be one. Uh, they contribute to our society, make it better every single day. And I just, you know, think that it's important for us to consider what it means to be an undocumented person in the United States. First of all, nobody comes to be in the United States uh, just because, like, why not? You know, come leave your home, your family, your language, your culture to come up here to be what, discriminated against? Uh, no, people do it because, you, in my opinion, uh, our U.S. policies around trade and other things to c- contribute to people's need to leave. Um, employers up here want, want to attract uh, undocumented labor so that they can pay them less uh, and they can have fewer rights. Um, and uh, when you think about the undocumented people, these are folks who – pay into Social Security, but they don't get it. They pay, uh, if they pay rent, they pay property taxes, but they often are excluded from many of the public service benefits that go along with it. I mean, these these folks, and then they have to live in fear 
and so I think it's important to understand that, you know, an undocumented worker is probably a highly exploited worker. Uh, and so it is in the interest of all working people to give everyone a status. That way we can, uh, we can make sure that there's real justice for everybody. And that's, that's kind of what you asked me, what's in my brain? Yeah. There's a lot more, but that's enough for now. That's pretty solid stuff. Um, one yeah. other thing before we pick up phone, phone calls, I, I heard that you, you have a podcast, like everybody's doing it, but we, we started a podcast a couple of weeks ago. We call it the Hartman Report. It's kind of best of this show. It's free. It's over on sure. iTunes. Tell me about your podcast. Well, my podcast is called We the Podcast. We the Podcast. We've been going for like uh, two years now. And uh, the, the reason that we did it, Tom, is because I looked on regular network news and you don't find economic news about regular people. When, when you ever find a, a, a TV broadcast show talking about, in the mainstream, talking about payday lending, talking about the diaper need, talking about the need to increase the minimum wage to $15, or talking about, um, you know, even franchisees and how they often get mistreated by the franchisor and, and, and like, so, and talking about monopoly and how market concentration is really hurting this economy. So basically, we the podcast is all about how people outside the billionaire class experience this economy. That is, uh, and you can go on iTunes and check us out. We the podcast. That's great, and that's you know, uh, you're a you're a young whippersnapper here, but I'm an old fart, and I I, I remember, and maybe you're old enough to remember. I I, I don't know, but I, I I grew up in Lansing, Michigan. There were two statewide newspapers in Michigan: the Detroit Free Press and the yep. uh, the uh, Detroit News. And right. one, and I forget which was which, but one was the labor paper and the other was the business paper. One had a business right. section, the other had a labor section. And, right. you know, my dad worked in a tool and die shop, was very active with the union. We'd get the paper that had the labor section. And literally every day there was five, six, eight pages of labor news. Right. I think it's been basically since the 80s, since the Reagan era, that the newspapers have dumped all these labor pages, probably because they destroyed all the unions. But right. I think it's just super that you're you're you know, filling that need, as it were, with a podcast. Well, yeah. And so we like to talk about, you know, the Nissan strike, the organizing drive here. The, we, we want people to know that, you know, people, you know, it's kind of a old saw now that, oh, the labor movement is shrinking. No, you know, let me tell you, man, there's a lot of fight in the labor movement, man. They're swinging every day. And so, you know, we talk about what's going on. We had uh, Lee Saunders on of the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees on. That's the podcast. It's uh, the most recent one. And we, you know, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about how it was AFSCME that stood behind the sanitation workers in 1968 uh, when uh, Martin Luther King marching with them was was shot down and killed. Yep. Uh, but it was AFSCME. And, and I think a lot of people need to remember that, uh, you know, when Martin Luther King gave his great speech, the uh, I Have a Dream speech, it was the UAW and other unions that helped bankroll that march. And it was and it was unions that were there when 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 he when he lost him. But, you know, they won the strike anyway. Um, and, you know, Martin Luther King was was prophetic on the importance of labor and unions and uh, the dignity of work. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going we're gonna to hit a, a, a real brief break here, and we'll be back in just a second with Keith Ellison taking calls from, from our listeners. Congressman Keith Ellison, the, uh, the deputy chair of the DNC, brilliantly representing the 5th District of Minnesota. His website, ellison.house.gov. You can tweet him at Keith Ellison, just like it sounds, K-E-I-T-H-E-L-L-I-S-O-N. And we'll be right back with more of Congressman Keith Ellison. And welcome back. Congressman, you're still with us, right? Right here. Yeah. Okay, great. Omar, watching us on Free Speech TV in Herndon, Virginia. Omar, you are on the air with Congressman Ellison. Hey, Omar. Hello, hello, Congressman Ellison. Thank you for taking my call out, Tom Harmon. And had and sure. Eid Mubarak to you. Late Eid Mubarak. Eid Mubarak. Eid Mubarak. Juma Mubarak. Salam alaikum. I just wanted to know, Ms. Ellison, what, 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 is, what are we doing right now to take back What's our strategy to back the House, the Senate, and the uh, White House? And also, I want to know about what is the DNC doing to deal with this voter oppression, like the caging in Ohio, that if you yeah. don't vote for two years, they're going to write you off. And this voter oppression throughout the country, what are we doing to tackle that? Let me tell you what we're doing. We are doing what I would call radical presence. We are becoming present and engaged in every single zip code in the United States. 
this look what we had a program called Resistance Summer this summer, where we literally knocked on thousands and thousands of doors all over the country. The DNC gave every state party extra money for one go- one purpose: canvassing, door to door canvassing, not television, not mail, direct voter engagement. We uh, actually were present and helped folks win in, in Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, Oklahoma, uh, and statewide seats. Now, we're going to continue that program. It's going to morph into the fall. It's called Rise and Organize, but it's canvassing. We have not been doing off-year canvassing. This is new. Uh, and uh, we're going in strong in Virginia, but we're not forgetting about every other zip code in America. Uh, our, our idea is that, you know, people view elections properly. They view them as a means to a better community. But us politicians have viewed election as the be-all and the end-all. If we will engage people all the time around building stronger community, then the election becomes a no-brainer because it's like, hey, the election is going to help us build a stronger community. Because we've acted like the election is the end, uh, people treat it in a very transactional way and don't really see the whole point because they, they, it's not clear to them how this improves their lives in their community. So that is what we're doing. Uh, and so, you know, we've had people on the ground in, in Michigan and, in, and I, you know, Mississippi, we've had them all over the country. And so that's what we're doing now. I don't know if you feel it yet, but we want you to do that. So check us out. We have a weekly program called Democrats Live. It's a live weekly uh, dem. It's a weekly Facebook live uh, live stream. And we're pushing out information about it all of the time. Now, when it comes to uh, voter protection, we know that the, the, the stock and trade of the Republicans is suppressing the vote. There's more of us than there are of them. So what are they going to do? They're going to suppress us. Well, we're fighting back. We're suing. We're challenging everywhere. We have a, a voter protection program, and, uh, you know, we've been active and on the ground, and we're, you know, we're using litigation, and we're using preparation and advanced action. Now, I'm not going to tell you where, where we need to be. We are sure not. Man, we got a whole lot more work to do, but I think that we have a clear direction and plan, and we've made some substantial steps, certainly since, you know, like May, June, to to really reorganize the Democratic Party into a grassroots-oriented party from what was, in my opinion, a battleground state party. That is absolutely great. And this thing of vote theft, I, I, I don't call it voter suppression, or I, I do, but yeah, vote theft. I really I like your word better. Yeah, because it is. It is vote theft. They're stealing our votes from us, damn it. And, right, you know, right. we should have a right to that. Congressman Keith Ellison taking your calls. We'll be back with just, in just a second with more of your calls to Congressman Congressman Keith Ellison taking your calls here on the Tom Hartman program. And uh, let's see here. Uh, Jack in Sacramento, California. You're on the air with Congressman Ellison. Yes. Hello. Hey, Jack. Hey, Jack. Yeah. Hi, uh, Congressman Ellison. I uh, worked for Bernie there for a couple of years and was very disappointed with uh, uh, the election. Um, I'm looking at uh, John Nichols' article in The Nation where it talks about the Democratic Party's lurch to the center, not going after rural districts. Uh, you know, I appreciate your energy. I'm a strong supporter of you. Uh, and, uh, but, I, you know, it, it, I, we don't hear. We're not getting it. We're not getting this force. And, frankly, this theme, uh, a better deal, uh, is just way too weak. I'm not sure what it should be. It's complicated to get the right message. But we've got to stop going for the center and triangulation. I even understand we're not supporting, um, we're not, uh, supporting uh, free choice and abortion anymore. Are we moving to the center? Are we trying to triangulate and have a milk-toast campaign? Uh, I don't feel the aggressiveness. The answer is no, we're not doing that. That is not what we're doing. But let me just tell you this. The easiest thing to do and also the most dangerous to do thing to do is is to be cynical, right? We're not we're not giving up. It is a it is an absurd idea that we are backing off our commitment to a woman's right to choose. We absolutely are there. We've been there. And uh, anybody who says that we're not doing that, show me the evidence as to where we've said we were not going to do that. It's just not the case. And I want to assure everybody who's worried about it that we are as for women's rights as we ever have been, if not more. That's where the party is. It's in our platform. That's where it's at. So there's that. We're not going toward the center. In fact, um, you know, uh, I think that it's clear 
that every time I go to a rally and I mention the importance of Medicare for all or single payer, that's the applause line. That's what people want. That's where people are going. Elizabeth Warren just signed Bernie's bill. I've been on Bernie's bill for years. And, you know, that's where it's at. So I don't, I don't see that the Democratic Party is going toward the center. Now, let me just say this. All parties are coalitions. And all coalitions that come together have different things that they want. So it is true that today the Democratic Party is your progressive, uh, you know, activist like yourself, like myself, like Tom. But there are also people who are a little bit more centrist. They are in our party. They're there. The question is, will we be energetic enough to move the party in the direction we want it to go in? If we check out, for sure the, the, the centrist will win. If we engage, well, then maybe they're going to have to see it our way. But my thing is the moment now calls for engagement. They're not, it calls for you to be involved. Now, you said something about you don't like the better deal. Let me tell you, the better deal is a document written, by, written to satisfy a broad coalition of people. But the better deal does work for progressives because it calls for what? Increase in minimum wage, increase in overtime pay. It calls for increase in uh, pay and for people. It calls for cutting costs. What costs? Uh, cost of the cost of uh, of, of uh, medi- uh, medical treatments, the cost of health care, the cost of college, the cost of uh, rents. But then it talks about how to fight the rigging of the economy, and we deal with monopoly, and we deal with uh, market concentration, and we deal with uh, uh, you know the money in politics. So the, there is plenty enough to work with. Let me tell you. There has never been a collection of words arranged in any, any arrangement that you want that are going to magically get everybody on board and inspire everybody. It's never happened, and it never will. We've got to understand what is messaging. Messaging has to do with the messenger, how that message is delivered. Then it has to do with the words that we say, and then it has to do with doing what we said we were going to do. The days when... The Democratic Party can say we're for the working people, but then support trade deals that hurt working people must absolutely come to an end. The days when the Democratic Party says we're for low-cost, unaffordable drugs, but, and then we don't fight for those things, that has to come to an end. Now, how does it come to an end? People like you demand it. You get up on Tom Hartman's show and you say we're not putting up with this. You write letters. You, you, and you make Democrats be Democrats. Now, that's how we're going to win. But to just say, oh, it's not what I want, so I'm not sure I'm enthusiastic, man, let me tell you where you get your enthusiastic enthusiasm from. When you think about 32 million people having their health care stripped away if the Republicans were to repeal the Affordable Care Act, that ought to motivate you. When you think about 800,000 kids who are Americans in every way being kicked out of the country by Trump, hopefully that gets you fired up. When you think about the president hugging and acting, and, and acting soft on the KKK, that ought to get you animated. So that's all I got to say, man. Uh, thank you for the call. And I, and, but, 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 but I need you to be an activist. And I just, just want to say this to you. Um, it's so easy to be a critic, but it's hard, to, it's hard to actually organize people and make it work. You know, and, and, and I know a lot of, I'm not saying this is you, but I know a lot of progressives who would rather intellectualize about message than to get out and knock a door. That's what we need. Go knock a door. Go knock a door. Go call somebody, recruit them to be involved in this movement. That is what I believe we really need. Yeah, my, uh, we, we just have 40 seconds till that break at the bottom of the hour I was telling you about. My, my big thing is telling people, join your local Democratic Party. Try to become yes. a precinct committee person. Yes, 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 absolutely yes. I mean, you know, stop complaining and become part of the solution, damn it. It's, it's, it's a very straightforward process. So uh, people can find their local Democratic parties, what, by Googling them, by looking in the phone book? Yeah. What? Yeah. Heck yeah. I got, you, can, you, you call up the DNC and say, where's my local party? And let me tell you, man, local parties are jacked, man. They're excited all over the country. Yeah. I'll it's, tell you about it when we come back. It's you know, great. You can, you can stick around for a little bit longer. Yeah, I'm going to hang out with you. Super. Okay, we got about a five-minute break here. Congressman Keith Ellison with us, taking your calls. We'll be back with more of uh, Congressman Ellison 
and uh, and your calls, your thoughts, and you know my thoughts and the news of the day. Stick. Fantasy football fans, the wait is nearly over. Football is back, which means FanDuel is back. FanDuel is fantasy football for everyday fans. They have new contests starting every week, so there's no busted seasons. FanDuel has something for everyone. Lots of contests to choose from, starting at just $1. Just pick a contest, choose your team, and watch your score in real time. Hey, would you like to have Colin Kaepernick on your team? He's on mine. There's a lot of ways to put together and personalize your team, and boy, the games just get better and better. Over 2.5 million players have won a cash prize playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Sign up today. Go to FanDuel.com, click the Join Now button, and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M. New users get free entry into the NFL Sunday Million with over $1 million in cash prizes when you make your first deposit on FanDuel. Just visit FanDuel.com and sign up with promo code TOM, T-H-O-M. That's FanDuel, F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com, promo code TOM. Void where prohibited. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Congressman Keith Ellison on the line with us. Congressman, you still here? I'm with you, man. Great. I appreciated you sharing with us that there's only one way to run an economy. Yeah, well, thank you. Only way. Oh, yeah, that, yeah that, we play that uh, over our stream, uh, you know, that people can hear. A lot of people who are uh, uh, listening to uh, regular radio stations and things don't hear that, that book report. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was from a book I wrote called Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. Um, yeah. So, ready to pick up some phone calls, and, and you've got, sure, what, another five, ten minutes with us? Yep. Okay, cool. Just let me know when you when you got a bail, okay? Yeah, uh, like Let's see here. Tim in Bakersfield, California. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind? You're on with Congressman hey, how Ellison. Doing, Congressman Ellison. How, Ellison, how are you doing, sir? Great. Hey, uh, you know, I just had a, I just had a question. Um, I'm a, I'm a fourth generation farmer here in the uh, Central Valley, California. Awesome. And, thank, you. Uh, thank you for uh, feeding us. I've, we appreciate what's that? it. Thank you for feeding us. We appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Well, we're, we've kind of got ran out. We were a small mom and pop, so we went Baker up in 98. So, but anyway, um, I dealt with the uh, the DACA program. I've got a lot of the, you know, as a kid, we used to have coyotes bring family members over and work for us. And I have brothers and sisters who came over as illegals who worked their way through the system and got their paperwork and are legal now. They're family members. Those are the people who fought for our land with us, you know, who worked right beside us. It was really a family mentality. And that's what most farm families are. And that's how we see most of the workers coming over. But I also saw in these these cities the the corruption that takes place because of the open border and the the isolation that a lot of these um, immigrants are put in by their own people who are held in third world con- uh, conditions in a first world nation in in our country which isn't acceptable so somehow congressman i would like that you guys work together to get them out of the shadows as as daca goes i'm a republican those kids belong here. They have no other home except here. And uh, you guys need to work together to get them legal and get them done. And I will promise you if Trump tries to push them out, I will fight with you to keep them here because there is no other place for them. The proper well, you got you got my commitment. You got you my commitment to, to, get, to help them get a status. Yeah. Tim, thank you. So you were saying, Congressman. I, I think I, I uh, commend him for calling, and I um, and I thank him for his uh, his observation. You know, I, I don't really refer to any human being as an illegal, but I understand what he's trying to say, and uh, and and so you know, I, I think he's right. Uh, you know, Trump precipitated this. I mean, you know, and and by the way, you know, we've been trying to push for comprehensive immigration reform for years. John Boehner just would never give us a vote. And when Tim uh, Ryan got the when he got the job, um, you know he promised he wouldn't bring up a vote on an immigration bill. So we'll see if he's going to keep that. I hope he doesn't. That's a promise not worth keeping. But I mean, I think it's right. I mean, you know, and I'll, I'll also say this: in the United States, we cannot keep subsidizing commodities like corn and others, dumping them into Mexico, and then saying. And then running smallholders out of business, and then mad when they come north to work. I mean, people don't want to. 
look, why would anybody leave their family, leave their culture, leave their loved ones, leave, you know, to come north to get discriminated against? They do it because of necessity, and in part, they do it because of our policy. You know, wages have dropped in Mexico 9% since NAFTA. NAFTA's no picnic for the, for the Mexican people. It might make uh, Carlos Slim a lot of money, but, you know, it doesn't make the average person. So what's my point? We need a comprehensive immigration bill. I'm for it. I'm glad to have some Republicans who believe that. I'm glad to have some Republicans who want to stand with us on DACA. Let's get a vote. Let's vote this. Let's get this thing over. Let's get this thing done right away. I'm ready to vote now. Okay. Kurt in Los Angeles. You're on the air with Congressman Ellison. Hey, Mr. Ellison, Congressman Ellison, it is an honor to speak with you, and thank you, Tom, my for taking my call so quickly. I live in L.A. County. Hey, it is so fortunate great. that um, I just got on after this guy just got off the radio. I live in L.A. County, but the way they got the, these things gerrymandered, Kevin McCarthy's district reaches into L.A. County all the way from Bakersfield. Right. And he has ran virtually unopposed since almost 2006. Unacceptable. And I would like to run against him. He is my like congressman. Good. Let's and, get rid of him. And I have had the FEC website bookmarked and on my web webpage, on my uh, browser, for over two weeks uh, trying to figure out some of this paperwork. And if I can just get you to respond to some of the emails and, and tweets that I've sent you to kind of help me get a campaign manager or somebody who can point me in the right direction, I promise you I would not disappoint you or any other person in the Democratic Committee, because I, I, I was involved let me just in... Say this. in uh, let me tell you this. I'm not aware of any reach-outs you've made to me, because if you reached out to me, I'd reach back. But just just DM me on Twitter, man. You know, I'm at, at Keith Ellison, and let's, let's, I'll, I'll plug you into the right folks, man. There's a way of doing this. Kevin McCarthy um, needs, needs to be uh, confronted on the issues, debated. And, and I think it would be better if he was in the private sector uh, for everybody. Uh, and so I'm very encouraged by you running. In fact, if anybody listening to the sound of my voice, I want you to think about running for office, for real, if you're for the people. And so let's, let's get it done, man. DM me, man. I'd love to talk to you about next steps. Okay. Jordy in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Ellison. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I've seen... Uh, a call to be in the streets on November 4th, and I've seen signs from this group, RefuseFascism.org, lately, calling for people to be in the streets and, and continue to be in the streets until uh, the Trump-Pence regime are removed. Do you think that uh, we have a good shot at impeachment, and how much good will it do when there are more Republicans lined up behind them? I think exercising your First Amendment right to disagree with your government and to redress grievances is always a good idea. So there's that. Do I think that, um, do I, I don't know if we can impeach him. I put it like this. If we don't try, we won't be able to do it. If we don't, if it, it, it's like one of those things where I can't guarantee you we're going to win, but I can say that if we don't play the game, we will for sure lose. That That's, that's, that's what I got for you, man. I mean, I, I'm just not the kind of person to, you know, gas you up and tell you a bunch of things you want to hear. I don't know if we can get him impeached, but guess what? He ought to be impeached. He deserves to be. And I think that uh, we need to support the Mueller investigation. As a matter of fact, Republicans like Congressman DeSantis in Florida are already trying to push bills to limit the investigation. What are they afraid of? Um, there's already, he's already threatening and, uh, publicly trying to undermine the investigation of him. He already fired Comey. So my thing is, um, let's, uh, let's keep the pressure on. Yeah. Amen. Uh, we have just uh, three minutes to a break at, at 45 Congressman Jennifer in Las okay. Cruces, New Mexico. You're on the air with Congressman Ellison. Hello. And thank you very much for taking my call. Um, I had, um, actually I was I'm trying to embrace free solutions that um, initiatives that are out there right now. And I was just wondering um, if you embrace these ideas as well. Um, one of them is the national popular vote, which would yep. circumvent the need for the Electoral College. 
I agree. Um, well, it would actually wouldn't circumvent it altogether, but it is. Uh, it would give us a popular vote to, to select the president. And then the next one would be the uh, ranked choice voting, which could be used as part of a national uh, strategy. And well, the very last one is HR 57, which is we're doing, we're doing ranked choice act. voting in Minneapolis right now, so I do have experience with it. And I think we're still working the kinks out. It's been positive. It's had some negatives, too. But um, we're st- I think we still got to keep working that over. Um, for those who don't know, you just rank your choices, as a- and you can skip the whole primary. You don't need a primary. It's like automatic runoff. What's the third one, ma'am? Oh, her th- third one was full representation. She's dropped off the line now. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm uh, not sure exactly what she meant by that. Yeah, but the first two I am aware of, I'm fully supportive of the first uh, with the second one, I think it works well at the local level. You know, we can continue to talk about it. Uh, so, hey, Tom, unfortunately, I got to hit it, hit the door, man. But thank you so much for having me on. My and pleasure. I'll see you next Friday. Congressman Ellison, thank you so much for being with us. Great talking. Yeah, I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between. Plus, the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget democracy begins with you get out there show up participate tag you're it we'll see you tomorrow you've been listening to tom hartman For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.